Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you for joining me once again. Today, my guest is Dr. Lucy Cameron, a global leader in the practice of foresight, digital transformation, and innovation, particularly in the Asia-Pacific region. Lucy is a leader and convener of the Asia-Pacific Foresight Group, and she led the Vietnam Future Digital Economy Project, which was a major collaboration between Australia's CSIRO and Vietnam's Ministry of Science and Technology. She was one of just four Australian women who was named as GovInsiders Women in GovTech in Asia in 2018. Uh, as a previous Queensland Government Smithsonian Fellow, Lucy has particular interest in innovation policy. As a member of the Data61 Insights team, she has led government and industry on policy and actions to exploit new technologies for productivity gains and local business development. It combines both digital transformation policy with foresight techniques. And we're going to really dive into understanding what those are a little bit more through the podcast today. Prior to working at CSIRO's Data61, Lucy worked for 10 years in the digital economy and productivity policy area of the Queensland government. And her PhD from the University of Queensland was in a study on the impact of broadband on regional Development and she joins me now from Data 61's offices in Fortitude Valley in the beautiful Australian city of Brisbane. Lucy Cameron, thank you very much for joining me on GovComs today. Thanks, David. It's a pleasure to be here. So, listen, tell me about foresight. What is that all about? The practice of foresight and how it can improve insight in order to improve policy. Foresight is the practice of medium to long-term planning and it's different from things like forecasting because forecasting is just using the numbers and it's just extrapolating out existing trends and there's only so far you can go with that before it starts to get erroneous. For instance, you can tell probably with some degree of accuracy, although not in these times, what the unemployment rate next year might be but if you tried to pick the unemployment rate for 10 years' time, you are you know, almost certainly going to be wrong. So um, you can't extrapolate all numbers out um, and get an accurate reading. So what Foresight is that it looks at the long-term drivers and trends and things that we can see out to the future and starts to bring in a, a whole lot of um, judgments to create not just one future but often um, multiple futures, like four or eight um, are generally the number we, we generate, so that people increase their range of expectations and they get over their future bias and they start to be able to make better decisions that plan for the worst as well as um, take opportunities in the best-case scenarios. So it, it's really about doing what countries like Singapore or the OECD or European countries do 
quite well and quite often, and that's planning for the long term. So that's what Foresight is. And because we work in CSIRO, which has to make very big investments in different technologies at various times, we try and take that longer term view so that we make better investments in those technologies. So if I could ask you then for an example of a particular area that you are working on at the moment, and what are those levers inside that particular issue that you would consider for the medium to longer term future and understanding the medium to longer term future? Okay, so we've done things like um, the futures in different transport systems. And some of the demographics um, affect transport systems. So we would account for things like social, political, technological, economic, environmental changes and try and say, well, in 10 or 15 years' time, our transport systems are going to look very different in these kind of ways. And what we've done in future of transport type studies are things like look at the development of autonomous vehicles and AI. We've looked at demographic changes to see who will be driving in the future um, and what sort of lifestyles they are more likely to be living. Um, we look at environmental changes, so the shift to low carbon futures or the um, increase in electric vehicles as well as autonomous vehicles. And we look at, um, you know, political changes. So, you know, a government's more likely to support certain things and other things. And by looking at all those long-term drivers, we can create a variety of futures for transport. And that means that governments are better prepared in any of those futures for some of the investments or the changes that they may need to make. And, um, you know, what... It's, it's, Go on. It sounds massively complex and time-consuming for lots of people to be able to create the fidelity in those models that would give you the confidence that perhaps you, you're onto something or that you can, you can make some judgments around those six to eight future scenarios. Um, it, it, it actually tries to simplify those complex futures. So what we do is say, you know, autonomous vehicles are coming. Um, you may like to invest in infrastructure. And if any of these features pay out, that infrastructure investment will be worthwhile. Um, it, it also looks at demographic changes, obviously. They're the, some of the more reliable long-term changes. And it can create a future whereby you can account for that and stop worrying about it. So... Um, it is very complex, but what it tries to do is take these very complex factors and create simple pictures that people can make decisions on. Because if people have too much information, they go into a decision paralysis and we stop moving ahead. So what types of skills do you need to have to be good at foresight? Well, it's um, it's part science and it's part um, art. So, you, you know, a good imagination helps. Um, but definitely good numbers skills. You need to be able to read trends, validate trends. You need to be able to work out, um, you know, who in the field is the actual expert in the field so that you can take advice and then reason with that advice to make sure that you understand it and, um, you know, you can build a future out of it. Um it is, it is a very, um, like what we do is we take a lot of people's views. So when we develop a scenario, we often go and stress test it with a group of people or experts in the field. 
and those experts will tell us whether we got it right or wrong. And it's, um, you know, it's a very humbling experience sometimes because you come out of those workshops and they'll say, oh, no, that's never going to happen. And you go back and you look at what it is in that scenario that um, is implausible. And what we try and do is we develop axes of plausibility, which means that everything that we create is possible and plausible and makes sense to the experts in the field. So you said that the the practice is well established in uh, multilateral organisations such as the OECD and that it is uh, used uh, commonly in in Europe. Is it a mature practice here in uh, Australia and the Asia Pacific or is it something that we are now just learning uh, to bring to our our policy making? Um, It's pretty much something we are just learning to bring to policy making. There are certain parts of government which have used it for quite some time, like the military and defence. Um, government, I mean, certain businesses use foresight and scenario planning. Um, and the the best example was where it started to take off in the corporate sector, which was in Shell Oil, who nearly went broke in the 1970s oil spikes. And they came out and said, "We can't let this happen again." We need to create scenarios of what if, what if there's another oil spike, what if there's another, um, what if cars take off in certain countries, that sort of thing. So some businesses, some large corporations do scenario planning. Businesses which have to make long-term investments like banks um, sometimes do scenario planning and Treasury does scenario planning. But um, it is something which, um, you know, general you know, day-to-day departments in government sector don't do as a matter of course. And it's something they could really learn from, I think, in terms of, um, you know, making those long-term and sticking to a long-term vision. And it's very easy in government to just have those three-year visions because, you know, a new government might come in and wipe out everything that you've done. Um, So taking that long-term vision and staying on some kind of long-term course is is harder than it seems often in Australian governments, but actually articulating it in a future of and having all this statistical evidence to back up the plausibility of, you know, different futures is a really powerful tool. And um, we've demonstrated it here in Queensland with a um, program that we've done with the Queensland government called Q Foresight, where we worked with Transport and the Public Sector Commission um, and the Department of Innovation to create really long-term reports on the future of those sectors um, and they've they've used that to make a number of really evidence-based policy decisions. How does something like the COVID-19 pandemic uh, mess with your models when you're trying to look to the future <laughs> and nobody saw it coming? Yeah, so the COVID-19 pandemic is a black swan event in scenario planning terms in that um you know, it's it's you. All the Europeans used to see as white swans, so all their expectations were were white swans, and then suddenly someone came to Australia and saw a black swan, and no one was expecting that. And so the the terminology black swan event um, relates to any of these sort of unexpected events that just throw, you know, the whole thing off course, and you have to rebuild the model um, again. So, um, you know, pandemics were not completely unexpected. There was a lot of people who were warning about pandemics. Um, 
especially parts of CSIRO and parts of the immunology branches of large universities and health departments. We knew that a pandemic was possible and although we didn't know exactly when, it was a probable event. Um, but most of the foresighting we do, you know, 15, 20 years, a pandemic will be a major event and might change the course of certain things. But in other countries, it will be a bit of a blip, like a two-year blip. But, um, you know, in other countries, it will totally change the course of, of what is going on there. And when we look at the impacts of the pandemic in Australia at the moment, um, there are a number of scenarios that might come out. And, it, you know, we were talking about the OECD before, but they've published documents on how governments can actually deal with that uncertainty. And they are things like grappling with the what-ifs. Um, they are things like um, trying to work out the contingencies and trying to work out the consequences of if, say, a vaccine is found in 12 months as opposed to three years, because although everyone's hopeful and expecting a vaccine to come around in, you know, 12 months to two years, it may not. It, you know, that is a serious possibility. And if it takes three to four years for a vaccine to be developed, what's that going to do to economies? What's that going to do to the fabric of societies? Um, and how can governments plan for those, those eventualities? So um, the OECD is actively trying to get OECD countries to um, do foresighting right now because we are in a period of high, high uncertainty and the, the pandemic is, you know, um, going to throw everything out. So in terms of your initial questions, how do we plan for this? We know that black swan events are possible um, and, you know, you can throw those into a scenario like the, the project I just did on Vietnam's future digital economy um, to say that, you know, in, in the event of a pandemic, this might happen. And in that, that scenario, GDP will be around this amount for the 20 years and population growth will be around this amount, which will mean your investment in technology will be lower. So you can just think of the consequences of that um, in a long-term way but um yeah it still is uh, it still throws you off your horse a bit when something actually like this comes along and um just creates an enormous amount of uncertainty but again you know this is where scenario planning is a great tool and you know you can you can bet that treasury and other large government departments um within canberra are doing scenario planning on certain contingencies at the moment. Now, I am very interested to come to some questioning around that future digital economy uh, project for Vietnam, but perhaps as a, as a way into that, um, you are recognised for your expertise in digital transformation um, and, and technology. How do you define digital transformation and... How do you then anticipate the impacts of things like 5G, like artificial intelligence, like the introduction of voice assistance? How do you model those impacts on, on future scenarios? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and there are, there are different ways to model it and you have to get agreement with whoever you're doing the modelling to as to um, what they would, A, prefer, but B, they think is 
the most accurate and appropriate set of models for that particular department or industry or government. So, um, yeah, what is digital transformation? Um, again, a really good question. It is basically digitising processes which are not digital at the moment for government productivity and efficiency. And, um, you know, using that technology in a way which benefits both the organisation and the, the clientele or the citizens that that organisation is serving. And, um, you know, there's a whole range of digital tools which are new or, uh, you know, just being adopted at the moment, things like, as you said, AI, but also blockchain, the Internet of Things, which are supported in some way by 5G technology and underlying that are the new quantum computing and other, you know, super fast computing um, tools that we are having, which we are developing at the moment. They will all point to a new future of doing things in government and industry and everywhere else. And um, we're just trying to work out what those futures are. And the modelling, say, that we do in the impact of um, um, AI in, um, say, Queensland would be things like, well, how many jobs is it going to replace? What does that do to the local economies? Um, what, what are the new jobs that are going to be generated? What do we think those numbers are going to be? Um, what impact does that have on transport and lifestyle? And, you know, if if artificial intelligence is taken up to this degree, then what does that mean for, say, government incomes and, you know, the, the broader taxation system? So those are some of the things that we consider. And um, we've also got a great macroeconomist on our team, um, he and Fem, Fem who um, has been trying to look at the um, impact of take-up of digital technologies on GDP. And so we, we make, um, you know, estimates of GDP impact based on the level of take-up of digital technologies. Now, this podcast is for generally people who work in government communication with the responsibility to explain you know, government policy programs, services and regulations to the clientele, as, as you describe them, the, the, the citizens. Mm -hmm. Now, if this is the future, as you mentioned, around blockchain, IoT, Internet of Things, driven by 5G, artificial intelligence, um, again, quantum computing, what skills do you think the communication professional needs to develop in order to be an effective contributor in this new world? Yeah, um, so I really feel like in the shorter term, um, and, you know, they're probably already onto this, but very visual skills. But as we go forward, so the visual skills at the moment, um, videos, um, you know, things that can go on social media, um you know, moving away from that chunky report, although the chunky reports are still in demand, um, believe it or not, but people still want all that data, all the, the text and data to dive into if they need it and quote from. But the, you know, most people get their information in really short grabs now um, on social networks, including, you know, the, the LinkedIn, Twitters, Facebooks, um, 
and they don't read that much. They look at the headline, they look at the images and they get the main messages. And then if they're very interested or if they're a, a policy or researcher like us and they'll go into the text. So those, um, those visual communication skills are obviously really important now. Into the future, I can see more, more communication done, um, you know, via ARVR potentially um, in, you know, it, it's, you know, going beyond um, just the, the connectedness that we've got now, you might see more communication through the Internet of Things devices like smart fridges or um, other things. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit hard to say, but definitely right now there's a switch towards the fragmented audience's um, visual and, and um, very short um, messages. And I think, too, that's why we're seeing a proliferation of, um, you know, these truth wars whereby people are just reading headlines and short grabs and not the material behind it. And, um, or, and not sort of checking where that material has come from. And that has created both information and misinformation in a way we've never really experienced it before. Now, this report that you did into Vietnam's future digital economy, that must have been absolutely fascinating. Oh, it was amazing. It was a really great privilege to do that work and to work with the Vietnamese people on um, you know their fast developing nation, they are second. You know their growth rates when I did the report in two, like ending in two thousand and nineteen, were second only to China in terms of growth. But not only that, they were very concerned at their direction of that growth and the fact that they wanted to move away from being just a low cost labour market into a far more knowledge intensive um, society. And they wanted to um, really use technology to the greatest impact, both for, you know, industry, but also they wanted to do it in a way which wasn't going to damage their society or, or fragment their society. So we talked um, to people right down. It's a very long, narrow nation. So right down um, from the top to the bottom of Vietnam and, um looked at what what they wanted to use the technology for, but also looked at the big trends in the country. <laughs> so they're urbanising very quickly and um, they're, you know, obviously on the doorstep for, of China, so they're right in the middle of the rising middle classes of Asia and are becoming a middle class within Asia. Um, they're, they're on the um, South China Sea on the big shipping lanes so there's a lot of trends that we looked at um, and, you know, it is, it's a very young country too, which is in its favour in terms of technology adoption and innovation. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a privilege and a fascinating piece of work. So where did you land in terms of, say, you know, the first three priorities that they needed to adopt in order to take advantage of um, digital transformation and, and the impact of the new economy? Where, where, where do they have to put their efforts in order to, to be best placed? Well, we started off, and this surprised a lot of people, but um, the power supply and infrastructure. 
um, because without that you don't have a digital economy at all. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of, um, there was recommendations about improving both the power and the ICT infrastructure so that it could be, um, you know, it was, it was cheap and accessible for people. Um, and then it was about um, cyber security and securing the networks because Vietnam actually has, in a lot of ways, better speeds, download speeds in Australia and better upload speeds. Um, it has really good fibre infrastructure across some of it and it is now rolling out 5G. Um, but some of that network needed to be more secure and for people to trust it. Um, a lot of people weren't using e-commerce and they were staying in the informal economy because they just didn't trust the networks and there had been a lot of hacking and, and other things on it. So cyber security was one of the second priorities. Um, the third was the, um, you know, the science and technology agenda to actually improve the science and to um, convince industry to take up those technologies um, so that you had very proud Vietnamese products and services being developed and the country itself wasn't just a technology consumer, it was a technology producer. So that was our, our um, third big area that we concentrated on and there were three others, but, um, you know, they're really the, the primary building blocks for a digital economy, power infrastructure, so, you know, security and standards and then the actual science and technology and the skills building up the skills that will, will help Vietnam develop and take up their technology for its own purposes. So Australia, if you look at Australia now, where do we need to to take advantage of everything? You know, we're a very fortunate country to have a lot of wealth and good education standards and good health and other things. Mm -hmm. um, Post-COVID or, you know, obviously COVID is still a risk and, and a challenge, but what do we need to do to, to really take advantage or to, to come, out, come out of this period strongly, you know, to ensure that, uh, you know, rising st standards of living can continue to be enjoyed by people? What are the things that we have to simply mm -hmm. focus on to, to create that better environment for all Australians? Yeah, well, it's it's there are similarities between um, what we need to do and what Vietnam needed to do. Um, but I think skills is a big one in Australia. But we need to have, um, to me, you know, an agenda of change to really take advantage of those skills. I'm a big believer in terms of... Um, if you want to drive innovation in industry, you start by driving it in government contracts and you contract for change. And in building that change, you build the skills and you build the business profile and you build the products so you can export them. And, you know, it's it's really, um, you know, so areas like hotspots like Silicon Valley were built on government contracts. They were built around defence areas and you know, semiconductors and vacuum tubes and all of the things which built the computer industry, which is now Silicon Valley, were built by the Defence Department. And I, you know, even though we don't have the multi-billion trillion dollar defence budget that the US does, we certainly have large government departments that can invest in change. And by investing in change, they build up the Australian industry. And, you know, we, when we think about that, we can think about blockchains for registries. We can think about AI for medical and um, 
um, resource management uses. We can think about um, drones and other technologies to monitor the reef and monitor um, government assets. And, you know, we can contract for large changes to our transport system and our energy system. I mean, I think this agenda for change and changing that follows the trends of the existing economy, so things like energy transition, um, better transport systems, um, more distributed work, that sort of thing, will not go to waste. Um, and it will build the innovation sector in Australia and it will create, create research institutes and badly needed research jobs within this sector. And then we can export those products overseas in other uses. So, um, you know, to me, there's a number of things, but setting, setting agendas of change would have to be the first one. Excellent. And using government procurement to do so, because it, it, it can be done and it can be built in. And I'm sure you'd be available to give uh, government departments some advice on perhaps the areas that they might be able to focus on in their procurement to, as you say, drive that particular change. That's right. Yeah, I think government procurement is a powerful tool. Like it is restrained, constrained in some ways by free trade agreements and, and um, other, um, you know, legal instruments. But it can definitely work with research institutions um, to develop um, proof of concepts. And, you know, proof of concepts are incredibly powerful for attracting new investment. For instance, if, if there was an Australian government that was doing um, proof of concepts in hydrogen fuel aircraft or trucking or something like that, that would attract a lot of attention and a lot of investment. And it would only need to be, say, a trial. If there were governments that were, um, you know, doing proof of concepts in blockchain, like the Australian um, Stock Exchange has done, then that just attracts global attention for people who want to know how to do it elsewhere. And, um, you know, there's a lot of lot that can be done within the government sector that would build up the Australian capability to apply it to the non-government sector and to the export markets. Now... Before I let you go, I just I do want to ask you a final question because I sort of I'm, I I quite like this idea of getting better at looking into the future. Um, so, uh, how how do I get better at, at at looking? Where can I learn more about foresight and and the practice of foresight and and learning those skills and 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 perhaps the models and processes and other things that will help me to be more effective in in looking over the horizon. Um, there is quite a lot, um, you know, well, the OECD has a foresight capability unit. We teach foresight capability um, or we, we have in the past to the Australian public sector. Um, we, we used to do senior executive training with the Australian Public Sector Commission. Um, we also, you know, do training ad hocly to people or government departments or or, you know, um, groups around the country in how to do foresight um, so that people can at least go back to their workplace and, you know, look at the trends and look at how to create scenarios with those trends. Um, but, yeah, I mean, a, a number of, excuse me, a number of our reports online will have an introduction to foresight so you can see the processes involved um, but yeah, it really, um, it's a bit of an art 
and it takes a little bit of practice um, and, yeah, you get better at it as, as things go along. But definitely if you are interested, David, I would recommend you try the OECD website initially and um, also look at our reports here at Data61 in CSIRO. Okay, I'm going to go and do that straight away because I think this is, you know, what a great capability to be able to have. So, Dr. Lucy Cameron, thank you so much for spending uh, time with us this afternoon with our audience, and I'm sure that they'll take an enormous amount uh, away from this and really to sort of bring it into their, into their daily work um, but also, thank you also for those insights around what are the skills at the moment that we need and the focuses, but then also those areas that we need to start thinking about. I think, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality, um, it's just such an exciting future for people who are in the uh, the government explanation business and, and looking at these tools and techniques to be able to create greater trust with citizens as they can understand, you know, the decisions of government and, and why they are doing what they are doing. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. And yeah, I'm glad you're excited about it because it is an exciting area. And to you, the audience, thank you uh, for coming back once again. What a fantastic, smart person. And doesn't that really make you feel good about the Australian Public Service? Because we have such smart people like Dr. Cameron out there thinking about all these things, so articulate, so clear, so obvious. And look, you know, and she gave us the, the keys to the kingdom. We can all go and jump onto the OECD website and, and look at um, the resources to get better at understanding the future and also those those tips about the way we need to start thinking about communication if we aren't already to do so. So what, what a great conversation. So thanks to Dr. Cameron and thanks to you for coming back once again. Very enjoyable, great conversation, but we will be back at the same time next week with another interesting guest. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes. 